Hi, thank you for joining us on one of the most comprehensive podcasts devoted exclusively to family offices, Family Office World. I'm your host, Ron Diamond, Chairman and CEO of Diamond Wealth. We represent 100 single family offices ranging in size from $250 million to $30 billion. I've been the keynote speaker at dozens of family office conferences around the globe and have spoken at over 150 family office conferences in the past five years. I'm in the process of writing a book on family offices and have consulted with dozens of firms who want to work with family offices, including banks, accounting firms, law firms, philanthropies, and various service providers who want to know what it takes to get in the door and then add value to the family office community. The family office world takes you deep into the inner workings of family offices. Each episode will have a different expert who works closely with family offices. Our goal is twofold. One, help family offices become more institutionalized and connect with each other directly throughout the country. And two, help service providers navigate the best way to add value and ultimately have family offices as clients. Please subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. I'm thrilled to have Paul Carbone with me today. Paul has been the managing partner of Pritzker Private Capital and its predecessor, Pritzker Group Private Capital, since 2012. Pritzker Private Capital acquires and operates entrepreneur and family-owned middle market companies with leading positions in manufactured products, services, and healthcare sectors. For the prior 13 years, Paul was director and managing partner of the private equity group of Robert W. Beard, which makes venture capital, growth equity, buyout investments, and smaller, high-potential companies in the U.S., Europe, and Asia. Prior to 1999, Paul was the co-director of investment banking responsible for Robert W. Beard's mergers and acquisitions advisory practice. Prior to joining Robert W. Beard in 1994, Paul was the senior vice president in investment banking group at Kidder Peabody and Company. Paul is also on the board of directors of several civic, cultural, and charitable organizations, including the University of Wisconsin Carbone Cancer Center, Misericordia Endowment Fund, Shed Aquarium, he's the executive committee and chair of the Human Capital Committee, and the University of Chicago Medical Center, where he's the executive committee and chair of the Finance Committee. He's also a member of the Commercial Club of Chicago and the Economic Club of Chicago. In 2016, Paul received the Stanley C. Golder Award from the Illinois Venture Capital Association in recognition of his contributions to the private equity industry in Illinois. Paul has served as an EY Entrepreneur of the Year regional judge, as well as national judge for family business category. Paul is a Phi Beta Kappa graduate of the University of Chicago. He received his MBA from Harvard Business School. Paul, I am thrilled to have you with me for several reasons, but thank you for joining us. I'm delighted to be here, Ron. So, you know, what I wanted to discuss is I speak at a lot of these family office conferences throughout the country, and a lot of the families will say, well, what is a family office? And everyone gives different answers. So my first question, before we dive into really the nuts and bolts of what I want to go over with you, if somebody says to you, you know, what's a family office? What is a family office? What is it? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I think I hope we'll talk about today is the evolution of a family office, because where we stand today, family offices take all sorts of sizes, shapes, intents, subjectives. But what, what at essence a family office is, is an, an entity that provides family services to a family group that's wrapped around a shared pool of capital. So the entity provides stewardship over a 
pool of capital that's shared by a group of people and provide services to that same group of people uh, as a core mission. Terrific. So talk about the evolution of family offices during, say, the past 10 years. How has the family office evolved as a direct investor and why? Yeah, so that's the, it's been a fascinating industry to participate in. And if you step back and sort of think about some of the constituent issues, the, the key issues that we've seen in the evolution, I, I mentioned that this is a family services vehicle that provides stewardship over a pool of capital. What we've seen on one dimension is that those two roles have been switched in some cases. So if you look over the last multiple years, we're seeing the evolution of a family office that takes on primarily an investment vehicle role, and then it may or may not have a family services component to it. Uh, some other dimensions of the evolution would be we've gone from entities which were primarily wealth preservation entities to entities which have become wealth creators. You've seen family offices evolve from an approach which has been mostly an allocation. They were allocators of capital to an approach where today they're active investors and acquirers, not passive allocators. You've seen an evolution in terms of the scale, the, the team, the sophistication of family offices. You've seen an evolution, another sort of vector. You now families have always worked together in some ad hoc informal way. You've seen that take on uh, over the years much more sophistication, more systematic, disciplined, focused uh, approaches to how families work together. So Bottom line, what, what we've seen over the last 10 years is an evolution of the family office into alternate structures and approaches. And really the reason why families and family offices have evolved this way is if you go back to basic and first premises, the families, families have wanted to achieve an, an investment outcome and performance in a risk managed way, but you have to do that in the context of the marketplace. And as the market has evolved, as, as there's been more capital that's flooded into the marketplace, as the market's become more sophisticated in terms of uh, the investing activity, in order to accomplish the family's basic objective, earning an attractive return in a risk-managed way, family offices have had to evolve to adapt to a changing environment. And so if you wanted to create those returns in a crowded marketplace, families take on different capabilities in order to achieve the basic objectives. And that's, I think, what's largely driven the evolution of the family office. Terrific. And, you know, when I speak at a lot of these family office conferences, I often use you and, and your company as a bookend, as an example of a family office who's actually on one end of the spectrum who's completely institutionalized this. A lot of family offices are more fragmented and inefficient, and certainly they don't have the, the means that the particular family office does. But you guys have taken it to the next level where you're competing directly with the, the, the Apollos and the Blackstones. What are the current family office models today? Yeah, so there's been, there really are a myriad of models in today's marketplace. And that's come in part because of the proliferation and just the number of family offices. So what we've seen today is sort of an explosion in the number of family offices in the marketplace. And if you look at the models today, they're in part driven by the fact that the wealth is created differently today than it has been in the past. So these new family offices that come on the scene, clearly many have been created by families who have built up great companies and had a liquidity event. 
but there are quite a few family offices that have been created by financial investors. So the whole private equity boom has created a, a slew of family offices from the senior partners setting up their own offices. From uh, You've seen the tech entrepreneurs create offices. You've seen the hedge fund investors create offices. And as a result, people tend to create offices that that reflect their capabilities, their skills, their their comfort level. And so in part, in addition to the evolution that we've talked about uh, earlier, you've seen a myriad of family offices take on the character and characteristics of their families and their creators. And again, multiplying the types and approaches of family office capabilities and approaches in the marketplace. So, So it's hard today to say what is what is a family office today? It's really a myriad of family office approaches, structures, use of third-party capital, not using third-party capital. It's it's hard to categorize them uh, and say that there is a family office approach today versus maybe 10 years yeah, ago. Yeah, you raise some good points. And I often speak about that in the family office world, I mean, we were really only in the first inning. Where, in your opinion, is the family office market going? If you know, we're, we're at the beginning, you guys have institutionalized it, but where do you see the family office market going over the next five to 10 years? Yeah, and again, if you think about this, that families are trying to accomplish their basic premise of creating return in a risk managed way, they will, the families have, have determined that to accomplish that, they need to evolve their structures. And so I do think you're going to continue to see this evolution of the family office in response to the market context. And so, so long as we've got a very liquid market, so long as we've got uh, the, you could even say overcapitalized market, you're going to see families determine strategies and approaches that allow them to accomplish their basic objectives. And so you're going to see, I think, increased sophistication, increased use of third-party capital, increased use of disciplines and approaches in order to deal with the, in the context of a competitive and crowded market. Now, one thing that's, I think, critically important is families in, have an inherent advantage in a crowded, uh, overcapitalized marketplace. Family capital is fundamentally different than, than traditional private equity capital, than, than other forms of traditional capital in the marketplace. Families bring a permanent and proprietary pool of capital to the marketplace that gives them flexibility, uh, really unlimited, if you think about it, unlimited flexibility in terms of how they invest, where they invest, uh, structures, approaches, duration, et cetera. That kind of flexibility in a marketplace that's filled with capital that has constraints on it, if used correctly, can give them advantage. Um, at minimum, it's differentiation. So if families choose to, they can create a differentiated, and I'll say advantaged, pool of capital, even though the market is massively uh, overcapitalized. And we can talk more about that if you'd like. But to me, that differentiation will be the foundation of, of winning strategies for families in this marketplace, regardless of the approach, the structure. Can you go a little deeper on how family office investors are different from all other traditional sources of capital? Just go a little bit deeper into that. Sure. So again, it, it, the, the source is permanent and proprietary. By permanent, I mean the capital doesn't need to be returned. In a traditional, traditional private equity 
structure, there's a limit, there's a lifespan to the capital that traditional private equity has. The, f the fund ends and the capital has to be returned. And in fact, usually the capital has to be returned well before the end of a fund for a traditional private equity because the, the private equity firm is then out in the marketplace raising a new fund in order to raise the new fund, they need to return the prior capital that their investors have given them. So it's traditional private equity is, is a cycle that needs to be repeated buy a company, improve it, sell it, repeat, uh, in order for the sustainability of the business model to be there. And so there's a velocity to the money from traditional private equity that doesn't necessarily exist or have to exist with family capital. So it's that permanent, it doesn't need to be returned. Proprietary means it's capital from the family. They can do with it what they wish. Well, that gives that flexibility and that flexibility, if you use correctly in the marketplace in a, in a sophisticated, disciplined way, you can create advantages with sellers who value that flexibility, sellers who value the differences. And if a seller values the differences you bring, that creates advantage for that source of capital. And I've often heard you talk about, you know, the fact that family office capital is patient capital. Can you go a little deeper into that and explain why patient capital is so important? Yeah, so here at, at, at Pritzker Private Capital, um, we've chosen uh, across the, the myriad of, of options we have with the capital, we've chose to be uh, disciplined about how we approach investing. And in particular, we focus on the duration of our capital as an important uh, differentiator for us in the marketplace. And we use that to appeal to partners, fam typically family businesses who are looking for a partner in capital, but who care about how the business is built, how the business is honors the continued legacy, the culture of the company, and in particular, how long it's held uh, for families who are not interested in seeing their company flipped multiple times because of traditional private equity. We've been able to use that, that dimension of flexibility, duration, to create advantage in the marketplace. So let me give you an example. We've gotten to know, had gotten to know over the years, a large food business. It was the fifth generation family business. And they had grown to a scale and the family had, had made the decision that they were seeking liquidity and they were seeking a partner. But they weren't interested in selling to a traditional private equity firm because they didn't want to see the firm sold multiple times to different owners and leveraged up. And as they didn't want to see their business that they had grown for literally decades and decades, uh, didn't want to see it subsumed into a larger company. So our family capital was able to step up, offer a third option to these family sellers that, that allowed them to feel comfortable that they were putting their company with somebody who understood family dynamics, who was going to build the business in for the right duration, the longer duration, and honor the legacy and culture of the business. And that's happening more and more in today's market. Family business sellers are understanding that there really is a third option that they have once they decide they need a partner in capital. Right. Now, you and I've, I've heard you speak at a lot of different conferences as well. And there's the two things that I see in the family office world where there's a huge advantage over traditional private equity venture capital is the first thing you touched on, which is it's patient capital. But the second thing, and I'd like you to delve in a little bit on this, is it's also strategic capital. So can you touch on that a little bit? Let's talk about the difference between patient and strategic capital. Sometimes people equate uh, duration with patience. 
patience in my my mind has sometimes has a negative connotation. It means slow, undisciplined, just come along, go along. But in the in the true sense, I think of of family capital. Patient just means uh, having a flexible duration um, to the hold period. I think families are are asking for and expecting a return on their capital. So it's not that families are interested in lower returns or aren't interested in seeing companies become better. And that's really where strategic capital comes in. We use our capital um, to help build better companies, and we think our model allows us to build better companies. We can work side by side with management to help bring resources, capabilities, contacts, relationships to help them execute their short and long-term plan. We can invest in the business because of the duration of our hold and make investments, significant often investments in businesses where the return may not come for years and years. And so as an example, we, we acquired a business in the first 18 months we expanded a Mexican facility, we expanded the China facility, we expanded the German facility, and we opened up a U.S. distribution uh, center. And so massive capital expenditures, which in a shorter hold period might not have paid to make those exp- uh, those expenditures. But because we had a long-term duration, we wanted to build the company and make it better for the long term, we could make those investments. And then I guess the last example would be because we're building the business for the long term, uh, we can make, in particular, human capital investments. We can invest in the team, develop the team. If you've got a shorter duration, you may not see a payoff from those investments uh, in, during your hold period. Strategic capital allows families to build companies. And again, I'll be biased. I think it's, I think, build better companies and more competitive businesses because of the nature of the capital and the approach it allows you. Well, I mean, in essence, what you're doing, you're improving operations. You're not just financially engineering the company. Yeah. And and listen, I want to make a private equity is a massively successful business model, traditional private equity. I'm not saying it's it's the wrong model. It's just a different model. It's created massive returns for their investors. It's just a different approach. And, and what I'm um, suggesting is people should not confuse family capital for traditional private equity. It allows for different approaches, different capabilities, and one isn't necessarily better than the other, but I, I believe there are, certain, there are certain approaches that families can take that are fundamentally different, and it allows us, we think, to build uh, better companies because of the approach we take. So how can a family office compete and create advantage in an already way overcapitalized private equity market? Yeah, so again, it goes back to if you take the differences that family capital brings to the marketplace and use those differences and apply those differences to sellers who care about those differences. So differences that aren't, don't matter to people really aren't worth much. But if you can find a marketplace where those differences are preferred, you can use that to create advantage. So as I mentioned before, um, family capital that honors legacy, that uh, that um, builds companies for the right duration, that understands um, the nature of that family sellers have complex situations. Sally wants to sell, but Johnny and Billy want to stay in. Capital that understands fi- family issues and opportunities. Families and sellers uh, who prefer that kind of capital will see it as beneficial to them. And therefore, it's not uh, all the dollars are equal. And so families that focus on the, the advantages of their, their capital 
and apply those to sellers and seekers of capital can create advantage, uh, even in a crowded marketplace, if that's done in a systematic and disciplined way. And you guys have obviously done a terrific job with that. Um, What obstacles do family offices face in being a direct deployer of capital? Yeah. So even though family capital has advantage and preference in the marketplace, you're still competing in a crowded market filled with uh, other people who are interested in deploying their capital uh, and creating returns. So even though it's advantage, you're not, it's not capital that um, gives you a, a, a pass. So you've still got to deploy your capital. You've got to create scale. You've got to create speed and certainty. You've got to build a team that allows you to go find the best opportunities. And then once you've acquired a business to go build the business, you've got to create market awareness. Uh, Sellers have to know who you are and understand who you are. So sometimes those things don't go well with families. Families can sometimes not be interested in creating awareness, not publicizing who they are and what they do. They may not have large teams. They may not want to, to pay the compensation that the market demands for certain types of talent. Uh, speed and certainty may not be sort of a, a forte of, of family. So families have inherent obstacles that they have to overcome. And some, some are willing to do, to do that and make the investments and, take, and make the changes necessary. And some aren't. And that's why, that's why some families are interested in being allocators. Some families are been interested in being acquirers. And that's why, in part, why you get this myriad of models. It's a function of what the family is willing to do and the changes and, and approaches they're willing to adopt. So how are the users of capital and intermediaries or advisors responding to the increased availability and sophistication of family capital? Yeah, it's been, it's been fascinating to watch over the last decade as more and more families have taken on the mantle of being an acquirer. So the source of capital has increased. The family capital is being seen less and less as whimsical or slow or, or undisciplined. The same time that's happening, you're also seeing an awareness on the part of sellers, recognizing again, that third option I mentioned, that family capital is a viable and attractive third option for some family business sellers. So you've got an increased demand for that kind of capital and an increasing supply of family capital. And as a result, I do think intermediaries and advisors have recognized the growing awareness of that uh, demand and supply. And you've seen investment banks and advisors dedicate people to covering family offices. You've seen strategies where um, advisors have become much more sophisticated in matching up family sellers with family capital. So you've seen the marketplace respond, the intermediaries in particular, respond to a growing source of capital and a growing demand for this kind of capital. And I think that's only going to continue. Uh, And so it's interesting to watch the market respond. So how, just in your opinion, how early are we? I mean, are we in the first inning, second inning? When you look at where family offices are going to be going, how early are we in the cycle, in your opinion? Yeah, it's hard to say. I think I think there's more evolution to be had. The, the sophistication will continue to grow. But what's where the challenge is going to come is we've all had the wind at our back uh, here over the last uh, several years. And it, it's made creating return that much easier. I think where we're going to see some interesting times is when um, the market is challenged, when, when returns aren't easy. And in fact, uh, families start losing capital. 
they, I think we may see change in the evolution. Some families may not want to risk the capital, may not want to take on the team that's required to run businesses in a, in a difficult market. So I think so long as the wind is at our back, I think you'll continue to see the evolution of the marketplace. It'll get challenged uh, during difficult economic environments, and we may see a slowdown. We may see uh, family capital pull back a bit. Um, and so it'll be interesting. It, it won't be linear, I guess, is what I'm saying. Um, but once markets do rebound, markets do return, uh, good times uh, return. And, and I think we'll continue to go back on the secular trend uh, that families will, will identify and use the advantages of their capital to create return. And so though not linear, I do think this is fundamentally a secular trend that we're going to see. It's just, it's just going to take some zigs and zags along the way as the economic environment changes. And you see this, the, the family office world, disrupting private equity and venture capital all the time more and more. Is that correct? Yeah, again, it won't displace private equity and venture capital. Traditional private equity and venture capital is massive. Family capital won't displace it, but you are hearing more and more from traditional providers of capital that they're seeing families as a real competitive threat, whereas once they view them as um, you know distant cousins in the in on the financial um, family field, they're seeing them really as uh, competitors for the opportunities they're looking at. But it, family capital is still going to be around the periphery until the family office space evolves further. Um, but we're certainly getting the attention of traditional providers of capital. Uh, that's clear. Got it. And then one last question for you. Um, let's assume you you own a company, your second, third generation family company, and you're ready to sell. You're being approached by a bunch of private equity firms and you're being approached by your firm. What is the major area where you're going to basically be able to say, look, by working with us, you're going to be partnering with us, and it's long -term, more long-term advantageous. What is the pitch to the family to say, yes, you can go the private equity route, and that's a great route, but this route is different and actually might be better? How do you, how do you position that? And again, we don't try to convince families to sell their businesses. Once they've decided, based on family dynamics, opportunities, diversification, whatever, that they need a partner and they need capital, then we're happy to sit down with them and do a compare contrast. And it really comes down to fundamentally how important is it to the family, what happens to their family business post-transaction. If they fundamentally care about legacy, if they fundamentally care about culture, the employees, how the business is built, how long the, their family name is on the door, if they care about those things, our capital may be the right solution. The other thing we take off the table pretty quickly with these family businesses is we recognize there's a market clearing price for a business. We're not looking, uh, and most family capital is not looking to steal businesses, is not looking to pay a significant discount for fair market value. We Everybody understands generally what markets, uh, businesses are generally worth. So it's so you take that off the table. Then it's a question of what sort of partner are you looking for? Do you want to stay involved with the business? What kind of partner would you like if you're an active management member? What sort of partner do you want stewarding your family legacy for the next uh, uh, chapter in the family's story? And some families 
feel strongly about legacy, feel strongly about how uh, the company is stewarded going forward. And some families feel less an obligation to be a, a steward of the business post-transaction. And so it's a function of how strongly they feel about the business and where it's going and how it's managed once they decide not to be the controlling investor. And that's when we sit down and work with the families to have them help them understand what their objectives are, how they prioritize object, their objectives, and whether we're a good match for their capital and their business or not. Well, Paul, this is terrific. Uh, you've been great. I, I could spend hours more speaking with you about this because you've done such a tremendous job in really institutionalizing the family office market. So I am, again, very appreciative for your time. You've done a tremendous job with the organization. And thank you very much for being my guest. I very much appreciate your time. Well, thank you. You're very kind to make those comments. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on Family Office World. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, rate it five stars and leave a review. Join us again next time for another episode of Family Office World. Thank you and have a great week.